0: We could get a lot of different outcomes here that could really dramatically shake up the U.S.-China relationship and second-order effects on the broader kind of strategic situation.
1: Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Taiwan will hold presidential elections in January 2024. Needless to say, these elections will have extremely consequential geopolitical implications. The two main candidates have differing views of Taiwan's relationship with China. Lai Ching-te of the Democratic Progressive Party is the current vice president and represents the stronger pro-independence faction of Taiwanese politics. His main rival, yo Youyi of the Kuomintang, the KMT, supports closer relations between Taipei and Beijing. And this year, there is a surprising third-party candidate, Ko Wen-je of the Taiwan's People Party and he's shaking up what is conventionally a two-party presidential contest. Joining me for an in-depth conversation about Taiwanese politics and these upcoming elections is Karis Templeman, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where he is the program manager of the Project on Taiwan in the Indo-Pacific region. We kick off discussing the political history of Taiwan following the Chinese Civil War, and then have an in-depth conversation about each of the candidates' positions on the key issue of cross-straight relations. If you've not already done so, please be sure to check out the new globaldispatches.org. This is our new homepage and home to our new newsletter. I'm really excited for what we are building out on the newsletter side of the operation please check it out at globaldispatches.org. Most of the content is totally free. However, there are some opportunities to unlock premium content as well and support the show along the way. And if you're listening to me right now on Apple Podcasts and you have purchased a premium subscription to the podcast through Apple Podcasts, please send me an email so I can comp you a subscription to the newsletter. And you can send me that email using the contact button on globaldispatches.org. We're using the honor system here. Thanks. Now, here is my conversation with Kars Templeman of the Hoover Institution. So before we discuss the key dynamics driving the 2024 elections, I think listeners would appreciate a brief history of Taiwan since the Civil War and of Taiwanese democracy. Can you briefly explain the circumstances in which the KMT came to Taiwan and established political control?
0: The KMT originally started on the mainland. It controlled the central government of the Republic of China from the late 20s up until 1949. And then it lost the Chinese civil war to the communists. And at the end stages of that civil war, Chiang Kai-shek, the leader of the KMT, prepared a kind of rear base in Taiwan as a last holdout against the communist onslaught. And in December 1949, he moved the capital of the Republic of China over to Taipei from the mainland. And he brought over a million party members and refugees with him, So Taiwan ended up, even though the the KMT didn't have any sort of pre-existing base in Taiwan, it ended up as the last piece of what they called Chinese territory that they controlled. And then from then on, the KMT was a kind of regime in exile. Taiwan, unlike the rest of greater China, had not been under Chinese rule for much of the previous century. So from 1895 to 1945, it was a colony of Japan. And the people who lived on taiwan those who were educated actually learned to read write and speak japanese but not mandarin and so there was a very clear kind of ethnic distinction between the islanders the native taiwanese who were there before 1949 and the mainlanders who came over in 1949 and after and that kind of ethnic divide broke down. There was about 85% who were Islanders, 15% who were Mainlanders. Mainlanders had a kind of a privileged place in the state because of their superior knowledge of Mandarin, their connections to the ruling elite, and they were favored by state policies as well.
1: So I take it it was in this period of KMT essentially taking over Taiwan from native Taiwanese, that they established a rather authoritarian style of rule, all the while experiencing a really remarkable degree of economic growth and development.
0: That's right. The regime was under martial law for 38 years, starting in 1949. And for the first few years of that period, the Chiang Kai-shek government's goal was to establish stability, basically ensure that Taiwan would not be invaded by the PLA, keep the United States on sides. And that there was an open question about that in 1949. But by June 1950, the US had resumed aid to the KMT regime. And then that aid also allowed Chiang Kai-shek to steer the economy in a different direction. And Jiang was not an economic technocrat by any means. And so he actually delegated a lot of authority to economists and engineers, actually, to kind of engineer the transition of Taiwan away from kind of poor agricultural society to one that today is an industrial powerhouse. I'd like to say Taiwan is kind of like hipster China, whatever China did, Taiwan did first before it was cool. And Taiwan's economic trajectory, its takeoff started really in the late 1950s, early 1960s, it has registered as impressive a growth record as anything the PRC has managed in the last 40 years.
1: So what were the circumstances in which Taiwan became a democracy and emerged from this authoritarian one-party rule?
0: It was a very gradual transition. The KMT had always emphasized that they were the leaders of free China and free China meant that they had to hold elections, but they also claimed for a long time that they were the rightful government of all of China, not just Taiwan. And therefore the central government of the Republic of China, which remember capital in Taipei, it could not be legitimately elected just by the Taiwanese. And they had to await retaking the mainland before they could hold elections for that body but they held elections at local levels really from the early 1950s on. Those elections were generally competitive. There were multiple candidates. There was often a kind of favored party candidate, but then independence would sometimes run as well. And so even from its earliest days, the regime was based on this idea that legitimacy comes from competing in and winning contested elections. So that's kind of the backstory or the setup for this. And then Starting in the 1970s, the old generation of mainlanders who held a lot of positions within the central government started to die off and the regime needed a way to replace them and they couldn't hold elections for all of China again and so they created something called supplementary elections for the legislature and the National Assembly and gradually they expanded the number of seats that were subject to election by Taiwanese. And so by the late 1980s, that number was up to about a third of all the seats in both of those bodies. But the real critical moment came in the early 1990s when the KMT president at the time, Li Donghui, negotiated basically with the nascent opposition to introduce direct election of all of the seats in the legislature, the National Assembly, and eventually also direct election of the president. And so This process played out over about 10 years. It started with the founding of
1: the DPP in 1986. And this is the Democratic Progressive Party, the current ruling party of Taiwan.
0: Right, which grew out of a kind of motley collection of anti-regime pro-democracy advocates, many of whom were persecuted for their advocacy for free and fair elections. But by the early 1990s, that had stopped. Taiwan lifted martial law, finally, in 1987, gradually rolled back a lot of the security state that had kept the regime in power, and rolled back a lot of the restrictions on free speech, on assembly, on the ability to publish and broadcast what you want. And so the process really kind of culminated in the first direct election of the president in 1996. And since then, Taiwan has actually been a a remarkably a high quality democracy, given that they had virtually no previous experience with multi-party competition and rotation in power between different parties. So in a sense, people talk a lot about a Taiwanese economic miracle. I also think there's a democratic miracle here where it went from having no previous democratic experience to having now what is a really robust, vibrant liberal democracy.
1: So in 2024, January, this robust liberal democracy is holding presidential elections. And I wanted to talk with you through some of the main candidates and their key positions, because obviously what happens in Taiwan's 2024 presidential elections will have major geopolitical implications. So let's first discuss the KMT candidate, Ho Yo-yi. And, you know, KMT is obviously still a major political force in China, but I take it they have more of an, I suppose, accommodationist view towards Beijing than their main rival, the DPP. Can you explain why that is?
0: Yeah, that's correct. KMT is often referred to as the China-friendly party in Taiwan's political parlance.
1: Which seems not to make sense given their history. Yeah, it's
0: quite ironic. It's one of many delicious ironies about Taiwan's political transformation. The KMT used to be this staunch anti-communist fighter, and now they're the party that Beijing is willing to talk to. And part of the reason for that is that while the KMT was vehemently anti-communist for much of its history, it also embraced a lot of the same Chinese nationalist positions that the PRC has increasingly promoted. And so they share a kind of common legacy of a vision of Taiwan as part of China, ruled by a single government and one that is a modern, prosperous country. And uh, the KMT has kind of struggled as Taiwan transitioned to democracy to reposition itself as a party that appealed to Taiwanese who may not have shared that greater Chinese nationalist vision. Over the long run, its support has declined in the electorate relative to the DPP, which grew up advocating for Taiwanese independence. Initially, they've moderated their stance, but they're still much more the China's skeptical party
1: in the electorate. And Ho-Yo-Yi, who is he and what's his background and what are his stated positions vis-a-vis the geopolitical position of Taiwan in terms of competition between China and the United States?
0: He was nominated as the presidential candidate of the KMT just a few weeks ago, and he's not well known outside of Taiwan. So I actually have the same question. I'm not sure what all of his positions are that matter for cross-strait issues and for U.S.-Taiwan relations. And so one challenge he's facing today is to try to articulate those positions in a way that is appealing to all Beijing, Washington, and the people of Taiwan. But a, a key piece of his appeal is going to be that as the nominee of the KMT, he can talk to Beijing. And so the tensions across the Taiwan Strait right now He can pretty credibly promise to dial those down, that Beijing will be much more willing to deal with him as the leader of Taiwan than they have been with the current president, Tsai Ing-wen, who is from the DPP. He also, unusually for KMT candidates uh, at the national level, he is a native Taiwanese or Banshung-ren in the Taiwanese parlance. That means he was born and grew up in Taiwan. He speaks Taiwanese, the local language as well as Mandarin. His career has been fairly unusual as well. He He's a policeman. He moved up through the police ranks over several decades actually before entering electoral politics. And so he doesn't have a long track record of campaigning for election, of taking controversial positions on whatever the controversy of the day is. He's generally not a very well-defined candidate at this point.
1: That's the best kind of political candidate you can reflect all of <laughs> your own biases on the empty shell. C- correct. Yeah. It sounds like he's a pretty good politician. So if he is elected in January, would that to your mind be a reflection that the electorate wants to kind of dial down tensions with Beijing?
0: That's certainly one interpretation. I think it's too early to say at this point. Part of the challenge with that interpretation is that the DPP, the current ruling party, is also struggling a little bit. They're facing some headwinds, in part because of just you know the problems that creep in after you've been the ruling party for two terms, right? As we know in the United States, it's really hard to win three terms in a row as the ruling party. And so the DPP has to make the case that they have done a good job over the last eight years, that they will continue to do a better job than the alternatives. And for an increasing number of voters who are frustrated, not only with cross-strait issues, but with things like the soaring cost of housing, rising inequality, the poor job prospects for younger people just entering the workforce, all of those things are, uh, it's much easier for voters to kind of point at the DPP as the problem rather than as the solution for those So, I think there's also a kind of to use a a jargony political science term, there's a a retrospective voting model here that suggests you vote against the DPP rather than for the KMT. So the KMT just has to be not crazy, not deeply disturbing in terms of what they're offering to voters, and offer a just a credible alternative that they and a promise that they'll do better. And they actually, I think, have a decent shot in this election.
1: So you mentioned the DPP. It's candidate is the current vice president, Lai Ching-de. He's obviously a well-known entity in Taiwan. What's his reputation among the Taiwanese electorate?
0: Well, so he's also a former local mayor. Like Ho Yo-yi, he started in local politics. But unlike Ho, he actually has significant experience at the central government level now. So before he was vice president, he was actually premier for about a year and a half. The premier in the Taiwanese system is a bit like the chief of staff. They run the government. They report directly to the president. They have to act as a, a good agent of the president. So he gained considerable experience and stature during that period of his career. Before that, you know, he's been a longtime party member. Uh, he's got a lot of longstanding connections within the DPP, especially among the I would say, the more pro-independence wing of the DPP. And he's also a physician by training, and so he can kind of make an appeal based on his professional expertise as well, that you know, he's a, a smart, thoughtful guy.
1: So, you know, his his current boss, President Tsai Ing-wen, has been rather outspoken in defense of Taiwan's independence, much to the chagrin of Beijing. Does he share that same view? And he is, as he articulated that view in the same kind of stark terms that Tsai has. Like, I'm thinking of that like banger foreign affairs op ed she wrote last year.
0: Right. I actually would characterize Tsai as one of the most moderate DPP leaders you will ever see. Hmm. So, Lai, if we think on in terms of a left right spectrum where left is uh, more pro-independence and right is more pro-unification. Tsai is towards the middle and Lai Qingda is definitely towards her left. Or in Taiwanese political parlance, he's deeper green than she is. And so one of the interesting questions that Lai faces is whether he can credibly convince people in the U.S., people in Beijing, and the Taiwanese electorate that he will hew as close as he can to Tsai Yingwen's kind of what I would characterize as a fairly moderate approach to cross-strait relations. And the skepticism is that, for instance, he has in the past said he's a pragmatic worker who favors Taiwanese independence. So he's not going to be out there chanting slogans every day, but he's going to try to find ways to preserve and expand Taiwan's international space, to promote its independent identity, and so forth. And Mm -hmm. those positions are a little bit more to the the green end of the spectrum than the positions that Tsai has taken
1: publicly. So in the context of Taiwanese democracy in recent elections, there is an insurgent third party candidate, mm. Ko Wen-je of the Taiwan People's Party, who is polling surprisingly well, considering the recent history of Taiwan as sort of more or less a two-party presidential state. So what is his appeal and what are some of his key positions?
0: Right, so his appeal is that he is deliberately positioning himself as being above the green-blue divide in Taiwan politics. So again, the green side being more skeptical of China, wanting to promote an independent Taiwanese identity, and the blue side being more favorable towards China and viewing positive, constructive relations with the PRC is an important part of what a Taiwanese uh, leaders should seek. And Ke is uh, trying to position himself between those two. In fact, the, the color of the party that he founded is actually aquamarine. So it's literally <laughs> between green and blue, right? <laughs> the trick that he has to pull off, though, is to persuade the green voters that he's not too blue for them and the blue voters that he's not too green for them. And I'm a little skeptical that he can ultimately pull that off. Right now he's polling well because he's polling especially well among younger voters, those under 40. And much of his appeal is based on his time as Taipei mayor, where he got a reputation as being a very blunt talker, somebody who's not politically correct in his positioning or his responses to the issue de jour, and somebody who uh, can talk to Beijing. He's actually traveled. the mainland a couple of times in his official capacity and said things that he portrays as a sign that Beijing will be more friendly to him than even to the KMT candidate. But I think as the campaign heats up, he's going to face a problem where the kind of natural partisan inclinations of much of the electorate start to get activated. And my own expectation is that he's going to bleed some of that support to both of the other camps.
1: Do you foresee this election to be a referendum on cross strait relations?
0: I mean, every election is to some degree. That is by far the most important issue in the Taiwanese electorate. I mean, ultimately, Taiwan's fate depends on that relationship with Beijing. The crucial question is really, can you as a leader of Taiwan, should you seek better relations with Beijing, potentially at the cost of some sovereignty and security for Taiwan, or should you try to balance against the threat coming out of Beijing by trying to get as close to the United States and partners and allies as possible? And that ultimately will be, I think, the, the critical issue that voters are faced with in this election. If you choose the KMT candidate, you're essentially casting a vote for making some concessions to the PRC, at least rhetorically, on trying to lower tensions and balance a little more between Beijing and Washington. If you vote for the DPP, you're saying, you know, continue the Tsai administration strategy of trying to get as close to the United States and trying to be as respectful of the United States' concerns and interests in the relationship as possible, potentially at the cost of any sort of working relationship with Beijing.
1: So what do you see then as the key geopolitical outcomes of the election in January?
0: Yeah, so the first is its effect on US China relations. Uh, we're in a to put it mildly a, a, a rough patch in <laughs> US China relations right now, and the long-standing biggest irritant in US China relations is the status of Taiwan. And this is an irreconcilable difference between our two countries, but we've over the last 40 plus years, we've found ways to manage it in a way that doesn't completely destroy the working relationship between the US and China. So uh, if there's a KMT president who comes into office next May, that I think lowers the temperature over Taiwan. It maybe makes Taiwan a less central part of the conversation between the United States and China over our many differences. If there's another DPP president who comes into power, I think we'll see kind of a continuation of the grievance politics coming out of Beijing towards the U.S. and blaming the U.S. for supporting independence advocates in Taiwan and and not hewing to various agreements that we've made in the past. And there will be continued, I think, military, economic, and diplomatic coercion against Taiwan. And then if Ko wins, the centrist candidate, it's a lot more uncertain what that would look like. A lot depends on how he approaches cross-strait relations, what he says to Beijing and to Washington and how those two parties react. So we could get a lot of different outcomes here that could really dramatically shake up the U.S.-China relationship and second-order effects on the broader kind of strategic situation.
1: So we're six months out from this election as we're speaking. I'm wondering if there is any nuance that is often lost in your view in most Western media's approach to covering Taiwanese elections. Is there something that is routinely ignored or not emphasized strongly enough that you think sort of discerning international affairs audience might be interested in, in sort of being clued in on?
0: So first I'll say the reporting on Taiwan by international media has gotten a lot better over the last five years. There's, I think, much more sophisticated analysis, a lot more nuance included in reports. So I'm much less critical of the way Taiwan is discussed in English language media than I was five years ago. Part of that is driven by the sheer number of reporters who used to be based elsewhere in the region, especially in China, Who've been kicked out of China and then have come to Taiwan and set up shop there and are now learning about Taiwan and reporting on it in a way that's quite a bit more thoughtful than when they were based in Beijing and kind of not not everybody but occasionally kind of parroting the uh, CCP party line about Taiwan. But there is a, a couple of big issues that I think uh, are important for an international audience to understand. The first is that Taiwanese voters as a whole are quite pragmatic they've lived with the threat of a PRC attack on Taiwan for their entire lives. This has been a threat since 1950. And so most people who came of age in the democratic area are used to having Beijing as a foil, as a both a threat and an opportunity across the strait. But they're also used to kind of living with that day-to-day isolation and pressure on a diplomatic level. And just finding pragmatic ways to get around the fact that Taiwan is so isolated in the international system. So Taiwanese voters generally are looking for pragmatic candidates who will find a way to get things done and to promote Taiwan's own economic, political and diplomatic interests with the rest of the world. The second piece is that Taiwan often gets portrayed as a very polarized society and a polarized political system. My own view is that that vision is fairly outdated now. The three candidates running for election in this coming race, the differences between their cross-strait policies are not huge. There's nobody out there advocating for a de jure declaration of independence next year. And there's nobody advocating for signing up for one country, two systems under CCP rule next year. All three candidates know that neither of those positions are attractive at all to the electorate. And- There's convergence towards a kind of muddled middle position where uh, the differences between you and your opponents are based on pretty subtle language and frankly, your reputation or your party's reputation, given what they've done in the past in this cross-strait relationship. Mm -hmm. So I don't see Taiwan, no matter who wins, as kind of producing a candidate who's really going to shake things up. I think Taiwanese voters and the candidates themselves are all pretty pragmatic about how to manage the cross-strait relationship.
1: Carlos, this was really helpful. Let's talk again in January after the elections to get your analysis. Thank you.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me on.
1: Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash globaldispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts.